Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. I'm Eric Rivenis, and this is Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'd like to head to Hutchinson, Minnesota with you now. My guest is Brian Haynes, Executive Director of the McLeod County Historical Society. I follow the Historical Society's Facebook page, and Brian writes some great articles about his neck of the woods in Minnesota. One article struck me especially an article called Murder at Buffalo Creek. And I asked him on to chat about that. Thanks so much, Brian, for agreeing to speak with me. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. So where is Buffalo Creek exactly? Um, Buffalo Creek is kind of runs right through the heart of McLeod County. It, it runs near Broughton, Minnesota, through Glencoe, cuts right through the heart of McLeod County. The area that we're about to talk about, does it look like it, it did back then? I mean, still in some parts, or, or is it developed now? I believe, okay, so, so where the kids, you know, where this, where this part of the story actually took place is kind of on the outskirts of Broughton a little bit. So um, it would probably look somewhat similar today as it looked back then. Um, of course, you know, the, in 1897, there, there wasn't quite the agriculture you know, that we have going on, so the area would have looked a lot more wild than it does today. But uh, as far as, you know, being outside of town or being out in the country, so to speak, it would it would look similar. Okay, so part of, of Buffalo Creek, at, at the south end of Glencoe, you write, it, it is a place called Hangman's Bridge. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's, that's actually one of my favorite stories. I'm a uh, I am a uh, a lover of paperback westerns and you know Clint Eastwood movies, spaghetti western kind of stuff, and this story just fits right into it. So um, what happens? And this is uh, right around the turn of the century. So the 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 old west, you know, per se, is kind of uh, dwindling away. There's there's still just some remnants of it, um, but for for the most part, we're we're entering into the modern world. You know, we're we're starting to see uh, paved sidewalks 
you know, kind of things in the towns and, uh, st- everything's starting to look more 20th century than, uh, 19th century. So at any rate, you have, uh, you still have drifters, you know, kind of coming around the county. Uh, well, coming around the nation, actually. And you have these two guys, um, their names are Musgrove and Singmars. And they have just finished a cattle drive. They're, you know, cowboys. In every true sense of the word, these two are cowboys. And so they come up north after their cattle drive. they got a little bit of money in their pocket, and they're coming up. And uh, according to the reports at the time, they're looking for land, uh, whether it's like hunting land or whether they're looking to settle somewhere. That that I'm not certain of. I, I didn't delve that far into the research. But uh, at any rate, they're coming up here looking for land. They find themselves over by Glencoe somewhere. Um, don't ask me the exact place on the map. Like, there again, I'd have to go back and I'd have to look at it um, to give you a, to pinpoint the exact location. But uh, at any rate, they are on the outskirts of Glencoe. Um, they are heading into town to buy supplies because they're going to head back down south. Um, what their purposes of going back down south are, I couldn't tell you. But anyway, they hitch a ride with a farmer. They hop in the wagon, and as they're going by another farmstead, a dog comes running out of the uh, farm place and is barking at the wagon. So, you know, like some things never change. You go for a drive out in the country, and how many times does a dog come running off to somebody's farmyard barking at you, and you're worried about hitting them and everything else, and the first thing that enters your mind is that, you know, cotton-picking dog, you know, probably using different language, but, you know, get out of the way, dog. And uh, anyway, so the dog comes running after the wagon barking. Uh, one of the two guys, um, Musgrove and Sing Mars, fires a shot at the dog to get the dog to run away. Um, I don't believe they hit the dog, but they uh, fire a shot at the dog. Well, the owner of the dog comes storming out of his house, and he's you know he's just irate. Well, you know why are you shooting at my dog? My dog's just barking at you. You don't shoot at somebody's dog. Um, what transpires is a heated argument. Um, one of our two drifter cowboys gets into a fight with him, punches him in the nose, bloodies the farmer, and then these two hop back on the wagon and, you know, head into Glencoe thinking that everything's fine, you know, they've just dealt with the problem, it's all said and done. Well, while they're in, while they are in Glencoe, um, getting their supplies, this guy, this farmer who these two punched, is also in Glencoe, um, talking to Sheriff, Sheriff, uh, Sheriff Rogers is his name. And so, Joseph Rogers, Sheriff Joseph Rogers. And so he's telling the sheriff, you know, hey, there's these two guys, they assaulted me, you know, go get them. You know, it's your duty, you know, we elect you, we pay your wages, go get them. And so the sheriff and this guy are, are around, looking around town for these, these two guys. Um, they find out that these two guys had, uh, had just left town. Um, they're heading out, uh, I think, on the south side of town over, yeah, it would have been on the south side of town over the bridge, um, which would later be called Hangman's Bridge, but the bridge crossing Buffalo Creek. And the sheriff basically goes to meet them. They're outside of town now. He goes to meet them. And, uh, again, what transpires this time, you know, it isn't just a fist fight. It's a gunfight. Um, according to uh, Musgrove and Sangmar's, the sheriff drew his gun first, 
and then they drew their guns. And now one of these two cowboys thinks he's a gunfighter also. So he pulls his gun, and he claims he's going to try and disarm the sheriff, you know, all John Wayne style, just shoot the, or maybe I should say Lone Ranger style, you know, and just shoot the gun right out of his hand. Um, and anyway, he pulls the trigger. I think he hits the sheriff in the arm. Um, the sheriff fires again, and uh, here's where the reports kind of start to vary. Um, some of them say that the sheriff shot himself in the leg when he fired. Some of them say that it, you know, hit towards the feet of the uh, the two cowboys. Well, anyway, um, the other guy, I believe it was Musgrove. Um, again, I'd have to go back and look. Raises his repeater. He's got like a Henry repeating rifle that you'd see in a western, and he shoots Sheriff Rogers in the chest. So Sheriff Rogers is laying there. He's dying. Um, the cowboys walk over there, they take the gun, they chuck the gun, and they basically hightail it out of there as fast as they can because they know, you know, hey, we just shot a sheriff, so we're we're in deep now, so let's get out of here. Um, well, Sheriff uh, Rogers' deputy is on his way out there to meet Sheriff Rogers, and he sees that he's laying there and dying. So he brings him over into a farmhouse, um, that's nearby, and he dies either on the way or dies while he's in the farmhouse. I'd, again, I'd have to go back and take a look um, to get the facts right on that. Uh, at any rate, he goes back into town, and they ring the alarm bell. The town forms a posse, and the posse goes out in search of these two guys. Meanwhile, like over in Hutchinson, um, you know, news had already traveled that this has happened in some of the communities around. And over in Hutchinson, same thing happens. You know, they're forming a posse. They're going to go up. They're going to find a guy. Um, basically, they're all over McLeod County. They are rounding up any stragglers, any drifters, any strangers they can find and are throwing them in jail. Um, there's a little kind of side story that goes with it. And uh, there's these two drifters. And they get thrown in jail, and one of them is arguing, you know, we haven't done anything wrong, let us out of this jail. And the other guy looks at him and he goes, ah, no, you know, this is probably the safest place for us right now because, oh, in the countryside it's mob rule looking for these guys who just shot the sheriff. Um, at any rate, the posse that formed from Glencoe, they go out and they eventually, it's like a day later, and they're actually outside of the county now. They catch up with these two guys these two cowboys, Singmar and Musgrove. And uh, another, the, these two are, they're, they're kind of like skirting the edge of a swamp. And so another gunfight ensues. And these two, Musgrove and Singmar, they're trying to like actually flee across this swamp. But then they get into an open spot and there's, you know, gunfire, you know, just hail of bullets all around them. Well, they finally give up and they come out of there. Uh, they get brought back into Glencoe. They get thrown in the county jail. Um, and then a uh, you know they're they're gonna set up a uh, trial and everything. Well, in the meantime, people are so mad that they're worried about a mob forming and coming and getting the guys and just you know hanging them or lynching them on their own. So at some point, they actually call the military and or the national guard. Actually, I don't even know if there, it was national guard yet at that point, but they call in the military to come and uh, you know protect these guys. Well, as it's getting closer to the uh, date of the trial and these guys are still in custody um one night a mob forms in glencoe they go in they tie up the jailer you know and remember this is a guy they know you know so it's like uh 
I, I imagine in my head that they they did it in a friendly way. But at anyway, they tie up. Any rate, they tie up the gen or the general. They tie up the jailer, and uh, they take Musgrove and Sling Mars, and they escort them out of the jail. And according to the stories, uh, Musgrove and Sling Mars, you know, they know what's going to happen. They know what's going on because these this is clearly a lynch mob. You know, your classic old west lynch mob wearing flower sacks over their head, you know, holding their torches and pitchforks, kind of thing. And uh, Musgrove and Singmars are pleading for their lives, and these guys just aren't even having any of it. You know, just they just take them, they march them down to the bridge, they tie one up on each side of the bridge, and uh, push them off. Don't you know? No last words, no nothing. Just you're done. Push them off the side of the bridge, um, and that is how it gets its name, Hangman's Bridge. And it's just, uh, it's in some ways, I mean, there's no grand ending to the story or anything like that you know there's no like grand gunfight nothing like that but it's just uh you know it's i don't think people people don't always realize that events like this that are worthy of being a tv show or a movie you know a lot of them happen right in our own backyards at at one point in time so it's just kind of a interesting story and easily one of my favorites absolutely so you mentioned that in your article that that happened in 1896. And then one year later, in May of 1897, Buffalo Creek sees violence and bloodshed once more, right? Right, yeah. They ought to be naming it Blood Creek at some point here. Um, so, yeah, in uh, a, a year later, there are two school children, and they're walking to school, um, a country school, so they're, they're, right out, they're outside of Brownton. And there's a bridge that comes over Broughton. Now you got to remember this is in the spring of the year, so the uh, the ice melt and the ice from the winter and everything um, had kind of, uh, and then of course the ice dams in the creek or river had mangled the bridge up to, and kind of twisted it and made it impassable. And so the kids loved walking by this bridge and playing on the bridge and seeing the bridge. And they're kids, you know, this something like that just really makes their day. And uh, anyway, they're on their way to school. I, I always imagine that they're kind of, you know, skipping along, throwing rocks into the river, you know, picking up sticks and slapping the ground with them just like kids would do. And they get, as they're coming along the creek, they see a dead body laying in the creek. So they run, they get the school teacher. Um, the school teacher comes running back, presumably with kids all around her, because of course the kids are going to come with her. Um, and she comes back, and she sees the body laying in the creek, and she faints. Um, so a couple of the older kids run, and they get a uh, neighboring farmer to come and help. And he and some neighbors, they all run down there, and they see that there's this body laying in the creek. Well, the town basically sets up this little tribunal kind of, you know, ad hoc sort of investigative committee. And they kind of, you know, they, they kind of look at all the circumstances. They see that he's got a slit across his throat, you know, basically from ear to ear. Um, and it's his own, you know, it, it looks like it was his own razor that he had done this with. And uh, the way they look at it, it looked like he was on the bank, um, his throat got cut, and he just kind of staggered into the river and died. Now, for some reason, and I still cannot wrap my mind around this, they ruled it as a suicide, saying that he slit his own throat. Now, I'm not like any kind of, you know, detective or any kind of, you know, 
person like that, or I can't think of the, the right word here, um, you know, that would be able to investigate. I'm not an investigator, crime investigator or anything. But if I saw somebody with their throat slit from ear to ear, suicide would not enter my mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody commits suicide that way. Right, right. Um, but anyway, they, they claim it was a suicide. And uh, basically, case closed. You know, the guy, they, they, he had some money on him. They were able to identify him because he had some money on him and like a bank note from a... Uh, um, a bank uh, over by the metro somewhere. It might have been Rochester. Um, I can't remember for sure. Again, I'd have to look to get the the city that the bank was in. But he had a bank note on him. And mind you, um, going back, this is, again, this is kind of like a drifter type of person that's just drifting through the area. Um, at the turn of the century, you had people, you know, wandering around quite a bit. Um, I suppose looking for work, you know, looking for a place to settle, something like that. Um, at any rate, this guy, he's the barber, he's there, they find him dead, they say it's a suicide, um, he has a bank note on him, there's money on him, and that was actually part of why they decided it was a suicide, because if it was a murder, somebody would have taken that money, but he had the money on him. And uh, anyway, here, years and years later, there's a guy on his deathbed, and this guy is making a confession, you know, to the people around him. And he said, hey, I murdered somebody one time um, over by Broughton, Minnesota. Uh, met him in the creek bed. You know, we were just two drifters that happened to run into each other. Met him in the creek bed. Found out that he had money on him. Um, found out that he was a barber. Told him that he needs a shave. So he sat him down like he was going to shave him and instead slit his throat, took nearly all of his money, but left him with a few hundred dollars in his pocket so people would think it was a suicide. Um, this guy eventually goes, I believe, back into Broughton, does some business with the money he just stole, and eventually flees the area, and then years later is on his deathbed and uh, tells about this happening. Um, so they, the people, like, they reopened the investigation to a certain extent, um, just basically just to look at the facts and say, oh, yeah, I guess we were wrong. Even the doctor who, uh, or coroner, whoever who, you know, originally ruled it as a suicide after getting these facts says, oh, I guess we were wrong. You know, now, now it makes sense that he was killed. Um, well, at any rate, the, the funny thing is, if you were to look up the death records of this guy who had his throat slit, it's still ruled as a suicide. They actually never went back and changed it. Since this murderer was on his deathbed, they just, you know, assumed, well, what are we going to do? We can't do anything about it, so let's just leave it alone. It's old news and everything else. But still, there again, it's like just a crazy story. Um, two things, you know, that happened less than 10 miles apart in the same creek in less than a year. It's just, just kind of crazy, I guess. Really interesting. And now there are people living in homes along the banks with no idea of what happened in their own backyards. Oh, ab yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, to think if, uh, I always say, you know, say it like with a, like with a historical item, like an artifact, you know, imagine if this could talk. Um, sometimes you have like an old gun or something that's uh, hanging up in your uh museum or whatever you know and it's like man imagine if this thing could talk the stories it could tell and it's like you can kind of think of that as uh, on the countryside as 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 well you know imagine the secrets that uh 
these river valleys, that these hills, that they hold, the things that happened here that we don't know about, you know, as always. It's just kind of one of those things, I guess, that draws me uh, draws me to history a little bit. Absolutely. So, so tell us about the McLeod County Historical Society and Museum. Where is it, and, and how can people visit you? All right. Well, we are located in Hutchinson, Minnesota. Um, we will be on, I believe, I'm trying to get my bearings here, so we're kind of on the west side of town, um, as if you were, uh, if like if you're going out on Highway 22, Highway 7, Highway 22, going through Hutchinson, we're right on the west end of town over by Otter Lake. Uh, we, the museum has been here since like the 1980s. Um, it's the, but the uh, organization itself goes back into like the 1940s, and uh, it's, you know, very, very old, very storied kind of place. Uh, we've got a pretty large museum. On our museum, we have a Les Cuba gallery for those people who all, out there who are familiar with Les Cuba or the quote-unquote dean of Minnesota wildlife. He painted just you know hundreds and hundreds of pictures of uh, Minnesota wildlife scenes. And uh, we actually have a gallery dedicated just to him. We have some of his originals in there. Uh, we have a lot of signed prints and, and everything from him. Um, he was from the Hutchinson area, so that's kind of how that ties in with our museum. Uh, we also have an Emanuel Albrecht uh, gallery, which is uh, more artwork. And these are uh, wood carvings that this guy who lived in Hutchinson did. And what's crazy is this guy owned like a standard oil station kind of thing or oil company kind of thing. And he would just uh, carve these wood carvings, you know, basically in the back room at the end of the day when he had time for something to do. Never charged anybody for them or anything. He would just kind of give them away, and they're just amazingly beautiful. And we have an entire set of them that tells this story of a woman coming to America to settle with her family, and her husband dies shortly after, and so she's trying to make it, you know, with her kids on her own, and we have all this depicted in these wood carvings um, in our Emanuel Albright Gallery. Uh, then we also have a, a fairly large exhibit gallery. Um, there's some, you know, town displays in there for one representing each town in McLeod County. Um, kind of just a few, you know, take a look back in time sort of displays. We've got an old bank in there. We've got like an old barn kind of thing, old garage, 1950s style uh, living room set up in there and everything. Um, very extensive research library for anybody who's looking to do any kind of like family histories, that sort of thing. Um, and then we also have a, a great team of uh, volunteers and some staff members here that are here every day to help people out, you know, if you're doing any kind of research or if you want to guide a tour of the museum or anything like that. Um, then we also have, behind the museum, we have a, an actual log cabin, the Shiru log cabin, which was from this area. Um, it was taken, disassembled on the site of where it was built log by log and brought over to the museum here and put back together. This would have been like 1983, I believe, that they put it here. And so we have an actual log cabin, you know, that's like authentic, not something that we just built ourselves, an authentic log cabin um, in the back of our uh, property as well. So a uh, very, very great kind of place for, you know, kids to come, um, you know, parents to bring the kids. I mean, we got a little gift shop and everything. Um, try to hold a few events throughout the year, fundraisers, just like any nonprofit museum would do. 
uh, open Monday through Friday from 10 to 4 p.m. and open on Saturdays from 1 to 4 p.m. So, yeah, and then uh, I guess, you know, some more big exciting news is uh, we are looking to uh, put an addition on the museum, um, hopefully starting the groundbreaking here in March, but uh, that I can't confirm yet. Uh, we had a donor who graciously gave us the money to put an addition on in the back, and so we're kind of looking forward to that as well. Well, well congratulations on that. that. That's great. Oh, well, thank you. And if people want immediate access to information, they can just follow you on Facebook at McLeod History. That's correct, yes. Uh, any kind of updates or anything like that, we try to get on uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Um, we try to get it on our webpage as well, you know, as soon as we... As soon as we know what's happening, you know, that kind of thing. But, yeah, people can uh, follow us on Facebook, get updates. And uh, actually, um, people who are interested in the uh, stories that come in the Hutch Leader that I write, uh, we put those after they've come out in the Leader, you know, about a couple weeks later, then we put them put them on the webpage as well for, or the webpage, excuse me, on Facebook as well for uh, people to read. And then, you know, aside from that, we also have a... Uh, bi-monthly magazine that goes out called McLeod, and uh, that usually has about three or four features in it, um, which are, you know, stories that I write um, and then that my co-worker writes as well that we put in there, as long as, excuse me, as well as some uh, updates about what's going on at the museum and everything. Um, it's a 12-page magazine. It's available only to members. Um, you can come in we we have a few extras. People can come in and they can buy them for five bucks a piece. Uh, for a twenty five dollar membership, though, then you would get six of them a year. So it actually pays more just to buy the membership. And then with the membership, they also get you know free admission to the museum, free admission to events, um, gift shop discounts, all that kind of stuff as well. So it's a pretty good deal actually if anybody's interested. Perfect. Thanks again. Oh yeah, no problem at all. Again, I've been speaking to Brian Haynes. Executive Director of the McLeod County Historical Society. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. Thanks and all. See you soon.